This episode was recorded hours before Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas fired 11 governors across the West Bank and Gaza. And while Palestine watchers say this decision has been a long time coming, the timing is certainly interesting. This is something that we're watching, so make sure to follow The National for all the latest updates. In Gaza, people have had enough. Enough fuel shortages, enough power cuts, and enough taxes. What you just heard were Gazans demanding answers from their leaders on where the fuel and power have gone in rare but not unheard of protests that are taking place under a campaign called Bidna Naish, or We Want to Live. So what does wanting to live actually entail in Gaza? What were people's demands? And how is the situation in the overcrowded strip impacted by the wider politics between Hamas and the ruling party Fatah? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Nadal Tahir, and today we're talking Gaza, West Bank, reconciliation, and everything in between. But before we start, if you want to get all the latest episodes as soon as they come out, then just hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. But first, some background. Almost 20 years ago, Hamas surprisingly won against Fatah in legislative elections. But things did not exactly go smoothly. They formed a coalition government, sure, but it all fell apart when tensions between the rival factions became too high to contain. They fought, and a week later, Gaza fell to Hamas, and Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas dismissed the Hamas majority government and declared a state of emergency in June 2007. This is broadly how we ended up here today with the West Bank under control of the Palestinian Authority, or the PA, and Gaza under Hamas. Since then, Gaza has been plagued with many challenges, which ordinary Gazans have been paying a high price for, literally. This year, their frustrations got worse by soaring temperatures, which may seem like something we're all going through, but for the people in Gaza exposes real and long-standing problems. Researcher Ahmed Basyuni explains. Ahmed here said people can no longer see justification in paying more while the electricity company continues to provide only four to eight hours of power a day, especially during this year's brutal summer. Under siege from the Israeli and Egyptian sides, Gaza is often referred to as the world's largest open-air prison. Half of the 2.3 million people living there are unemployed. So it's hard to imagine them paying more for alternative sources of energy, like generators or solar panels, during these power outages. All of this is taking place as leaders from the ruling faction Fatah and Hamas meet in Egypt. In talks, they say, seek to end the divide that has been making life all the more difficult for people in Gaza, ever since Hamas became the de facto authority there in 2007. And while these sorts of meetings do take place every now and then, the internal turmoil being seen in the occupied territories, coupled with the rarity of these protests in Gaza, has made us stop and think. There's a lot to delve into, so we've asked senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, Ghaith al-Amari, to help us unpack it all. So what's the history of protests in Gaza? Are they really that rare? First of all, we've seen uh, things like this in the past. In 2019, there was a similar... Uh, wave of protests using the same banner, we want uh, to live. Um, Hamas uh, in 2019 cracked down very brutally on these uh, protests, exactly as they are doing right now. 
Now, these protests come against uh, two uh, sets of backgrounds or backdrops. The most approximate and immediate reason is the socioeconomic situation in Gaza. As you indicated, uh, there is high poverty, lack of public services, etc. All at a time where people who are affiliated with Hamas, Hamas leaders, their families, etc., are actually living a good life. There are villas in Gaza, there are commodities that are available, but only to those who are connected to the uh, Gaza government. But on a deeper background, if you wish, um, it also happens at a time or, you know, in, in the context of lack of freedoms in the context of a Gaza uh, government that does not give, a Hamas government that does not give the public any uh, political space to express dissent or to uh, organize in a background of a Hamas government uh, that uh, is seen as almost as corrupt as the PA. So a combination of socioeconomic factors and political factors uh, came together to produce this wave of uh, demonstrations. I think that's what's interesting, right? Gaza, as we know, has been under a siege through land, air, and sea by Israel and Egypt since 2007, after Hamas took over the Gaza Strip. Hamas has constantly mentioned that as the reason for the lack of fuel and power, and the low standard of living in general. But one protester I spoke to told me that he often wonders, why, if Hamas isn't really responsible for these things, why do they crack down on protesters who demand them? Do you think that Hamas sees these protests as a threat to their authority? Oh, absolutely. Um, Hamas uh, is a de facto government. At the end of the day, Hamas can can claim that it's all about the siege and blame external actors. The bottom line is they are in charge. The buck stops there. And at the end of the day, when someone from Gaza doesn't have electricity, has no access to health care, etc., they will blame uh, Hamas. Hamas comes from a certain also political and ideological uh, background, a background that is uh, has no history of uh, tolerance or acceptance of dissent. They see any uh, expression of dissent as a slippery slope. These uh, um, protests themselves might not be big enough to uh, be an immediate threat, but they are afraid that if they open the space, then these might uh, snowball and ultimately become a threat. So they come from the approach of nipping things in the bud, and as such, they do not provide any political space for any expression of dissent, whether it's political dissent or dissent based on uh, the uh, you know untenable socioeconomic situation. So we've established that Hamas is a de facto government in Gaza, and that a lot of its function depends on international aid and donations. Qatar alone has allocated some $13 million a month for fuel and salaries, among other things. But then you have Hamas leaders like Khalil al-Hayya in 2018 saying things like this. He says people criticize Hamas for having enough money for the resistance, but not enough to alleviate people's suffering. He then goes on to say, the money that Hamas receives is for Hamas. And if there's a surplus, then the Palestinian people know that Hamas would not skimp on them. What does this tell us about Hamas's rule of Gaza? The uh, quote from Khalil Khaya, I think, completely sums up the way that Hamas looks at uh, Gaza. They look at it as a fiefdom. They look at it as almost uh, a cash cow, as something in the service of the movement. And uh, even though the money that comes to Gaza, and it comes from different uh, sources, mainly through uh, uh, Qatari assistance, but some through collection of taxes, uh, 
customs, etc. This is money that is not earmarked for Hamas. This is money that is supposed to be for the Palestinian people, but Hamas considers itself as the government, as the de facto leaders uh, in Gaza, this considers to be uh, their money. So what we see is that when this assistance comes, this assistance uh, comes, the money goes first and foremost to the Hamas leaders and their families, then to Hamas uh, supporters. And I think it's this mindset, this mentality that has made Hamas so unpopular. The people feel, the public feels that Hamas simply has no interest in their uh, well-being, that Hamas uses them uh, as a prop. We see this, by the way, often even during wars with Israel, where often, you know, civilian population pays the price. So this mindset, this mentality has created such resentment in Gaza, a resentment that uh, shows up periodically in the form of protests. Okay, so following the elections of 2006, which Hamas won, then its takeover of Gaza a year later, the PA, or Palestinian Authority, pulled out of Gaza, essentially, and stopped helping it out. Does the PA actually want control of Gaza at this point? First of all, Fatah is uh, is fragmented. There are certainly leaders in Fatah who understand that for Fatah to continue to claim that it is the big tent national uh, organization, that it's the uh, representative faction of the uh, Palestinians, it needs to have a strong presence uh, in Gaza. That, however, does not reflect the way that President Abbas uh, approaches uh, Gaza, both when it comes to Fatah and to Gaza itself. We saw in the past, for example, in 2017, Egypt, President Sisi himself was involved in this uh, effort. Uh, brokered a reconciliation agreement that basically allowed uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority to come and control the crossing points into Gaza and the and become the address for the finances coming into Gaza. And in the end, the Palestinian Authority said no. On the political side as well, um, we saw a complete abandonment of the Fatah movement in Gaza. Fatah actually is a strong movement in Gaza. It has supporters, it has a grassroots, traditionally had a very strong presence uh, in Gaza. After the Hamas takeover, President Abbas completely uh, cut them uh, out. If you look, for example, at the composition today of the Fatah leadership bodies, whether it is the Central Committee or the Revolutionary Council, we will see almost no, you know, no significant uh, representation uh, of Gaza. This does not seem promising for the talks in Cairo where the sides are supposed to be talking about reconciliation, does it? My understanding is that one of the sticking points is Hamas becoming a member of the Palestinian Liberation Organization, which effectively represents all Palestinians in diplomatic efforts, right? They're meeting in Cairo and they're talking about the exact same things that they have been talking about since 2007. Um, I lost track of how many reconciliation rounds we've had, whether it's in Mecca or in Cairo or in Algiers or in Moscow or in Doha. You know, the list is uh, is long. And at the end of the day, we know what a reconciliation uh, requires, a real reconciliation. Um, and neither side is willing to pay the price. And, you know, and these requirements were actually laid down in previous reconciliation agreements. And it requires primarily three elements. One element is Hamas wants to go into the PLO. The PLO continues to be the international body that represents the Palestinians, the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. Hamas wants to go in, which is fine. The problem with this, of course, is that Hamas wants to go in without accepting the PLO charter. The PLO charter had accepted the two-state solution, has adopted the Oslo agreements, has recognized Israel. Now, Hamas doesn't want to do that because Hamas knows if it does that, it's no longer Hamas. It becomes another version of Fatah, uh, etc. 
So they want all the benefits that come from uh, joining uh, the PLO, basically mainstreaming uh, and international legitimization without paying the price, and the price being accepting international legitimacy, uh, etc. So that is the first political obstacle. But that's not the only problem. There are also security obstacles. Raith explains further. At the end of the day, when we talk about uh, real reconciliation and real unification, the crux of the matter is security. You know, this is basic uh, political science. Uh, governance is about monopoly on the means of violence, monopoly on security. And Hamas today completely refuses to give the Palestinian Authority any security uh, presence in Gaza. And in Hamas, we also need to note that even if the quote-unquote civilian Uh, political leaders in Hamas are willing to maybe be flexible on this uh, matter. There is a strong military wing in Hamas, Al-Qassam Brigades, which acts independently, which has been showing uh, recently that it's not responsive all the time to the political uh, leadership. So the idea of real reconciliation right now is completely, in my mind, out of the question. We might end up with some, you know, pretend reconciliation, false reconciliation, We've seen in the past the creation of technocratic, uh, non-aligned uh, governments, you know, not reconciliation governments, but cons- what they call in Palestinian language consensus uh, governments, but these governments at the end of the day do not really have any meaningful authority and do not represent reconciliation without addressing the issue of the PLO, without addressing the issue of security, no reconciliation is uh, possible and I just don't see these issues today to be right. Finally, I guess it's important to ask, do people even want either one of those two factions? Is there a world where Palestinians aren't ruled by either Fatah or Hamas? Today, what we have is a Palestinian political system that has two wings, Hamas and Fatah. Both are facing deep, deep legitimacy crisis within the Palestinian society. Both have failed to present a national vision for liberation. Palestinians today don't believe that diplomacy will create uh, independence, nor do they believe that violence and terror will present a solution. But also, both movements have failed in domestic issues. Today, Hamas and Fatah are both seen as uh, riddled with uh, corruption. Both Hamas and Fatah uh, have created a very oppressive, very restrictive political environment. So when you have a political system where the two major uh, actors simply face such deep legitimacy deficit, it's hard to see how they move. Ultimately, I believe a measure of reform And I don't think Hamas can reform, but at least a major reform in the Palestinian Authority will be an essential first step to start uh, that you need to create a legitimate, credible, domestic Palestinian body. Um, and then we can talk about fixing the political system. But when both uh, elements are broken, it's very hard to see how they can fix the body politic. We are yet to see if the movement in Gaza is going to materialize into something more powerful and whether it will actually lead to any change. Thank you once again, Ghaith Al-Amari, for this detailed picture of the situation on the ground in the occupied territories and for giving us a look into the broader political rivalry between Hamas and Fatah, as more talks in Egypt are expected. I'd also like to thank Ahmed Basuni for speaking to me so candidly. This episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Dua Farid, and I'm your host, Nada Al-Tahir. This was Beyond the Headlines. We hope you found this episode as interesting as we did making it. If you did, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.